yeah, last time I ordered one, they gave it to me in like a regular glass. And I was like, what is this? Do you not care about me? <laughs> I mean, the obvious answer was no. Right. No. I also do not have like a copper cup to serve them in at home. I do. Yet. Yes. I do have um, sort of like the Yeti glasses. They're ostensibly for wine, but they also work for regular cocktails because they keep that super cold. I didn't know that Yeti made wine glasses. Of course they do. It's not actually Yeti brand, but it's the same idea. It's, you know, it's got like the dual layer with the air between to keep it nice and insulated. So your drink stays very cold for a long period of time. Well, thank God for that. Yeah, if it starts warming up, it just tastes terrible. I would agree. It's not a Moscow tea, is it? Uh, no. No, it, it's not. It's a mule. And mules are historically very cold animals. Very cold. A lot, a lot of people have said that. They're just antisocial. They tend to stay in the corner at parties. And, you know, if you, if you ask them for help... Sometimes they kick you. Yeah. Where do you think the phrase comes from? Kicks like a mule. A cold, distant mule. Can't. Detached, even. <laughs> How long can I stretch this out? <laughs> I'm just going to sit here and look at you until you figure it out. Mm. Hello, alleged human, and welcome to the Chaos Lever Podcast. My name is Ned. I'm definitely not a robot. Where once there was nothing, now there is me. I am a corporeal entity complete with feelings, thoughts, and a soul. When you prick me, do I not exude fiscus crimson fluid? If you tickle me, do I not guffaw uncontrollably? If you poison me, do I not expire? Well, I don't, but... Anyway, uh, with me is Chris. Hi, Chris. How did you get out of the Guggenheim? <laughs> I've been to the Guggenheim. They, they didn't let me stay. They let me stay. Hmm. Hmm. It was some kind of some kind of very sad art. They, they were like, you're part of the depression installation over there. <laughs> we call this. Why did you wander out? <laughs> Don't be like this guy. Volume seven. <laughs> uh, I hope you were signed by the artist. Ironically, Don't yes. tell me where. <laughs> We are we are fresh and full of life, aren't we? Full of sandwiches, really. Yes. Delicious sandwiches. Large sandwiches. Carb and protein heavy sandwiches. Between that and the barbiturates, I don't know how we're going to make it through this show. <laughs> we need some uppers for the downers. Oh, is that how it works? Yeah, yeah, you know, you can't you can't just live off of quaaludes alone. Well, life lesson there. So it could be a new sticker. <laughs> <laughs> you can't live off of quaaludes alone. Oh, I wouldn't be mad about it. I mean, lots of other people might. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's assuming they even know what those are. Which I got to admit, anybody uh, like under the age of 50 might not even be familiar with that drug. The only way they would know about it is that it was a big piece of Dennis Leary's stand-up comedy. I said under 50. Oh, <laughs> Oh, my mistake. <laughs> what was it? No Cure for Cancer? Was yes. that his big breakthrough album? Yeah, I definitely had that on tape. Cassette, if you will. <laughs> and listened to it a lot because, you know, I was at the ripe age when that's the exact type of humor that would appeal to me most. Right. Mature. Responsible. Yeah. Not, not at all there for shock factor. Or screaming. <laughs> or screaming. I... I I was not a big Sam Kinison fan, though. Well, you have a lot of bad takes. You're not wrong. <laughs> and that, that that's a good take. See, I did it. You want to talk about some tech garbage? Let's. Okay. As promised last week, I'd like to talk to, uh, talk to you about my experience at HashiConf Global, where I went a couple weeks ago. Acceptable? Well, I didn't go to it, so it's mostly going to be... You know, a monologue, but isn't carry it always? On. Yeah. yeah, nothing to add. I mean, hi, Chris. <laughs> what? Sorry, I zoned out there for a minute. <laughs> exactly. All right. So I'll start by saying I'm a little biased and 
results may not be typical. See your local conference organizer. Um, I have become deeply entrenched in the HashiCorp community over the last few years. And in the process, I've met a ton of people, both from HashiCorp itself, their ambassador program, and in the larger tech industry, because, you know, there's an orbit there, if you it, will. It explains why you're wearing the HashiConf t-shirt as we speak. I sure am. It's also really soft. The HashiConf face tattoo, I have more questions about. <laughs> well, uh, there's only so many things to do in L.A. <laughs> <laughs> so, as a result of that affiliation, I felt welcome at the conference in a way that I've not felt at previous conferences I've attended. So I think if you were coming in cold and you didn't know anyone, things might have been a little bit different, but I don't think they would have been that different. Pretty much everyone I interacted with there was friendly, warm, and inviting. Oh no. This is a cult, isn't it? <sighs> what was in the cookies, Ned? One of us. <laughs> One. <laughs> it's funny because they won't let me talk to my family and loved ones anymore, but you know what? It's for the best. Right. <laughs> They'll come around. They'll come or around. Or else. <laughs> uh, so before I talk about the announcements and the tech and all that jazz, I thought to myself, why don't we do a little refresher on attending conferences in person, since that's a thing a lot of us have not done recently, and what you can do to maximize your enjoyment. Good thinking. Step zero, though, before you jump into it. Yes. In terms of size. Okay. How large of a conference are we talking about here? How large was HashiConf or yeah. how large? Okay. That was about 1,200 people. Okay. So not an especially big conference. I would put it firmly in the medium range. And compare and contrast with some, let's go to the extreme edge and say, I don't know, the, the Ignite that just passed. Had well, again, Ignite is an interesting situation because they didn't do a single large location like they have pre-COVID. So pre-COVID, they were having it in Orlando a lot. And <laughs> we're talking thirty to 40,000 people. Which is the terrifying, horrifying numbers that I'm remembering whenever somebody says conference. Yes. That's what I think of. Exactly. So if you were one who had attended, attended VMworld or VMware Explorer in the past or reInvent, those are the sort of eye-watering numbers that you might have encountered. Mega conferences, if you will. And I might. Ignite was a little bit different because instead of having one location and making everybody go there, they did a bunch of hub locations across the world. And so each location was limited to like 1,500 to 1,800 people, which is still sizable, right? But it's not the 30,000. Right. So you do have a chance of actually seeing the same person twice. Although there's this weird effect even at big conferences where you'll see one person at the beginning of the conference and you'll just see them repeatedly over the course of the entire conference, no matter where you go. Oh, well, that's just your deep state minder. Everybody has at least one. Oh, I thought it was kind of like when you learn a new word and you see it everywhere situation. That seems more likely. I agree to disagree. Don't get upset, Steve. He doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> okay, so in this case, I am talking about a smaller conference. It's right. 1,200 people, roughly. So not huge, not... Um, didn't feel cold. Yeah. And that's, I feel like in the larger conferences, you do feel like you get lost in, in the shuffle. There's ways around that. But anyway, so if you're newish to the tech industry, there's actually a really good chance you've never been to an in-person conference. I mean, the last three years. Um, heck, even due to the pandemic, there's a chance you've never even gone to an in-person event. <laughs> right? <laughs> Whether it's a user group or something else. And even for those of us who have been doing this for a couple of decades, <sighs> oh, world, chances are we might be a little bit rusty about this in-person thing as well. So, first of all, you don't have to be all gussied up. No one's saying you got to put on a suit and tie. In fact, prefer you would prefer you didn't. But please try to adhere to some basic personal hygiene. I know we've all been ensconced in our personal layers for the last two years. When you extract yourself, maybe take a moment to clean off some of the cobwebs. And I don't know, slap on some deodorant. At any point, feel free to do that. Like, that's like a life lesson, really? More <laughs> than just conferences? Yes, but conferences too. Yeah, 
small room, enclosed, recycled air. Yes. We yeah. see where this is We going. don't need to belabor the point. I don't think so. Take a shower! <laughs> Second, respect personal space and boundaries. Not everyone is 100% comfortable with hugs, handshakes, fist bumps, or gentle nods from six feet away. It is okay, and it's actually appreciated to check with the other person before proceeding with a greeting. Even if you've met over Zoom or Slack in the past. Wait a minute. Are you advocating for consent in a personal relationship between two individuals? I know. It's fucking wild, isn't it? Outrageous (laughs) concept. I'm really just pushing boundaries here. There were many people who I would see, and I'd met them on Zoom or whatever before, and they would stop and go, are you a hugger? And I'd go, yeah, and they'd give me a hug. But I appreciate that they asked and then just assumed that they could run up and hug me. Well, I figured they would have assumed, considering you went through the entire event dressed like a squishmallow. Listen, I spent that money for Halloween last year, and I'm going to get my money's worth out of it. I'm wearing this wedding dress every day this year. (laughs) Oh, yeah, they had to take it out a little bit, but it's fine. (laughs) So, in the same vein, give others grace to make mistakes. We're all navigating this post-pandemic in-person thing as best we can, and faux pas are inevitable. I don't mean just shut up and take it, I'm not saying that, but gently informing someone of their gaffe instead of recoiling in horror is probably the way to go. Another option, projectile vomiting. <laughs> I enjoy your counterpoint, thank you. You know, if you have to. I'm just saying it's a fun thing you can practice at home. <laughs> and it's an excellent weight loss program as right? well. Ouch. Apologies for that. Third, if you are there to meet people and make new friends, use body language and social cues to indicate that fact. Sitting in a corner with your hood up, crouching over a half-closed laptop is not a good way to meet people. I feel seen. Walking through the expo hall with your hands in your pockets looking at the floor while scowling and muttering under your breath, also not a viable strategy. Were you literally following me around? How would you know? (laughs) So I know these are just kind of like inflated examples, but what I'm trying to get across is that other people are going to pick up on how you present yourself and act accordingly. If you're looking to engage with others, take the headphones off. I know it's hard. Relax your shoulders a little bit and maybe even make some eye contact. It's just that easy. Maybe put the gun away. Let's not go overboard. (laughs) I know my rights. (laughs) And this is obviously aimed at people who are more introverted in nature, which even despite the fact that I'm on multiple podcasts, I am also somewhat introverted in nature when you meet me in person. So this is something that I also struggle with is making sure that I seem receptive to conversation. Right. And I've been meaning to talk to you about that. The fact that you wander around with your arms outstretched and your eyes wide open, unblinking and smiling like a lunatic, not giving off the vibe you think it is. I was wondering what was going on the whole time. People were just running away shrieking. I mean, the fact that you were bleeding from your ears probably totally coincidental, but it didn't help the vibe. All right, that's fair. Now, of course, I'm assuming that you are attending the conference in person because you want to interact with other humans in real life. I don't really like that term. Other humans in person. Otherwise, what the hell are you doing there? Are you there to attend sessions? You can do that remotely, for free, without dealing with things like travel, hotels, and strangers. If you just want to watch the keynotes and learn about the latest tech, I assure you, all of that is in the virtual conference. So being in person, at least for me, is all about interacting with other human beings and having interesting conversations that are unlikely to happen in the virtual context. Which is another good point, you know, tying that back to the Microsoft Ignite example. A lot of people, probably more than when in person, went to the virtual conference. Yes. And it also had the added advantage of being zero dollars. <laughs> Doesn't hurt. Doesn't hurt. <laughs> you know, with inflation, it's still zero dollars. Wow. All right. So, assuming you are there to actually meet people, how do you do that? It's impossible. End of episode. Oh. Well, if you're anything like me, 
you might be a little shy and awkward. Hard to believe, I know. Awkward, easy to believe. Okay. You shut. shut, shut <laughs> people, damn it. The idea of walking up to a group of strangers and striking up a conversation fills me with dread. Will they all laugh at me? Probably. What do I even say? No idea. <laughs> What's the deal with airline food? <laughs> Am I right, people? <laughs> Don't worry. There's a group of people you can 100% talk to without fear because they are there specifically to talk to strangers. And those are the fine folks staffing the booths at the expo hall. Mm-hmm. Simply walk up to any vendor booth and briefly peruse their materials. I guarantee someone from the vendor will start chatting with you. Now, I know what you're thinking, Chris. I don't want to talk to some sales bro who's there to harvest my contact info. Fair point. They already did that anyway, though. Absolutely. (laughs) In my experience, most of the booth staff are actually bored to tears and are happy to talk about anything that's even tangentially related to their product. And maybe not even that. (laughs) Listen, their job is boring and thankless. They have to stand, maybe sit, but mostly stand, for eight hours each day, missing all of the interesting technical sessions, in order to promote a product that they may or may not care about. And no coffee. Coffee's for closers. I wasn't sure where you were going with that. Now I get it. So... If you walk up and you seem mildly interested in anything, they will engage. And you can steer the conversation however you want from there. Don't get creepy about it. And this is especially if the staffer is, I won't say of the opposite sex, but of your personal interest type. Don't start hitting on them, because that's bad. But striking up a conversation, that's fine. Think about it like hitting on your waitress. And by that I mean, don't. (laughs) Precisely. If someone else walks up while you're having that conversation, be sure to make room for them by stepping to the side a little bit. And now, you have another person to talk to. How about that? Look at you, making friends. Alternate option, elbow to the throat. Monopolize (laughs) the conversation, maybe take them hostage. (laughs) You know, potato, potato. I mean, I guess it depends on what kind of conference you're going to. (laughs) Strike back conference 2022. (laughs) I've got tickets to kill or be killed. Oddly enough, it's the macrame conference. (laughs) I would have gone with knitting. Needles, pointy, stab, stab, stab. That's why it's macrame, because it's so much harder. It's more of a strangulation kind of thing. Mm. Anyway, another great way to strike up a conversation is to attend a breakout session or two and ask the speaker questions when they're done. Please make sure those questions have something to do with the talk they just gave. Otherwise, again, don't hit on the waitstaff. Some of my favorite interactions have occurred after the formal session is done out in the hallway where a group of attendees chat with the presenter about some aspect of their talk. Even if you don't have a question yet, you can join the group and listen in. Chances are, if the topic was of any interest to you in the first place, and if it wasn't, why were you in that session? Then you will have something to add to the conversation in due time. And look at that. (gasps) Chris, you made even more friends. That doesn't sound right. Hmm. It's hard to believe, I know. Now, the last option I'll mention is making friends at mealtime, and this one can be a little fraught, because talking while eating does present its own host of challenges. What do you mean? You just, you eat, and then you talk. What's the problem? Some people kind of try to do both at the same time. Yes, and? It's awkward. Well, I mean, you do you. It's also a time to sit down at a table with others and possibly strike up a conversation. Now, that can seem a little bit scary. I will admit that and you might not know what to chat about. Fortunately, there's an easy shortcut. Ask people about themselves. Most people like that. That's not even a conference tip. That's a life pro tip. (laughs) Ask if they liked the keynote and what was interesting to them. Ask if they attended any good sessions or talked to a cool new vendor. You're all there for the same reason, more or less. Ask them what they do for work or where they're from. I met four people who were from the Philly area at HashiConf, and that was ample fodder for conversation. I assume you talked a lot about the the Phillies and the Eagles. Or Wawa. We talked about Wawa a lot. (laughs) That's one does. Okay, so I hope that was helpful. 
We're deep into conference season now, so if you're going to KubeCon or reInvent, I hope that helps. Above all, be friendly, be kind, and give others grace. And don't forget the deodorant thing. That's like... That's For like real. A, For real. Yeah. Just please do. Just do it. So that... Wow. That went a little bit longer than I planned. I guess we'll talk about the HashiCorp announcements a little bit. Ready? Go. Okay. So, during the keynotes, the main messaging was around refining their approach and marketing by observing some things that are happening out in the larger industry. That is primarily the development of platform teams and how they integrate with existing DevOps teams. Tell me more. So, there has certainly been some... uh, How can I put this? Stupid blog posts about DevOps being over and how platform engineering is the new hotness. Without making the connection that the two are actually uh, complementary. So DevOps usually happens at the application team level. And platform engineering happens sort of outside of that, helping to build a platform for those DevOps teams to use. So the two kind of help each other. Isn't that the whole point? DevOps is not to have two separate teams? What? No, no. Okay, this is... We're going down this aisle. All right, that's fine. So computers... Tell me about that. (laughs) Damn it. So the idea behind DevOps was you build it, you run it. And that team that's responsible for running it is going to be made up of a collection of developers and operations folks who can manage that application. But that application still needs infrastructure or a platform to run on. And why reproduce that with every single team in your organization? Instead, you have a platform team that helps build the platform's standards and templates that the various applications teams leverage to deploy and maintain their application. So with their discussion here, what changes in terms of their message? How they're targeting their various products and better explaining who each product is targeted at and how they expect a a given person to consume the product. So the platform team is going to be really focused on using their products to build the template and the platform. And on the other hand, you have the folks who are going to be consuming that platform. And so they're also going to be leveraging the product, but more in of a consumer way. So understanding that going in helps you better figure out how you want to leverage the products as an organization. And say you do decide to go as company X in this direction and you have a platform team and a DevOps team. Mm -hmm. What are we buying from Hashi? Likely you are buying things like their HCP family of products, which Mm. is their SaaS family of products because that's how HashiCorp makes money. (laughs) And they like that, right? Ostensibly. They're for it? Um, Well, they are a publicly traded company, so I would guess their stockholders like it too. So prior to the launch of the HashiCorp cloud platform, the main way that they made money was through their enterprise products, which was basically the paid version of their open source stuff, open core, as it's better known. Now with SaaS, they are removing some of the administrative burden off of you by hosting it. And the products that are in that suite include HashiCorp Vault, HashiCorp Console, And most recently, the beta of HashiCorp Waypoint. And then uh, Boundary just went GA. And of course, there's Terraform Cloud off to the side, which is sort of their orchestration platform for running Terraform stuff. So all of that together is stuff that you can spend money on with good old HashiCorp. And so if you're on the platform team, you might use Vault as your secrets and uh, identity lifecycle management console to help you with your networking service mesh and you could be using terraform and terraform cloud to deploy infrastructure or build modules and make them available for the devops team to then deploy infrastructure on their own neat super neat another big theme was security and identity this won't be new to anyone zero trust was kind of the hot buzzword for a couple years I don't think they ever actually said zero trust in any of the presentations because they know that's kind of like people are a little done with it. So now they moved on to negative one trust? Uh, yeah, it's actually a square root of negative one, so they call it I trust. Ah, that's better. They're going to have some problems, though. Yeah, Apple Immediately might come from yeah, yeah, I didn't really think about that. Well, I'm sure they'll figure it out. Apple doesn't get litigious about anything. Never. All right. Hashtag we're joking. <laughs> Hashtag please don't sue us. 
So uh, what they're basically talking about is in the uh, bad old days of running in a data center where everything was static, the identity was pretty tied to the IP address for machines. Like you trusted traffic coming from this IP. Right. And in the new era, you need to assign identity a different way because IP addresses are changing, your infrastructure is more dynamic, and some stuff doesn't really have a directly traceable IP address. It needs another way to prove its identity. And so they were talking about how the industry as a whole and also their products are more centered around other identity approaches and settling on some kind of common standard like, I don't know, OIDC and, and JOT to prove that identity. I'm going to stop you right there. It's JWT. It's pronounced We JWT. are absolutely not ever pronouncing that ever again. <laughs> You're so wrong. <laughs> People love it. <sighs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> it does actually save time, though. It's JWT. That's that's three syllables. Right. Four syllables. Jot is one. Yes, but JWT is letters in English. And Jot is an affront to human nature. Potato, potato. <laughs> Basically, they were embracing the, the idea of proving machine ID through OIDC and right. JSON web tokens. Thank Happy, you. You're Thank welcome. Thank you. And hey, that was the topic of my breakout session. How about that? Wild coincidence. <laughs> what a kawinky dink. So yes, uh, my session is not yet available online. It'll probably be another week before all the breakout sessions are up. They have all the keynotes up and anything that was on the main stage. But breakout sessions are going to be another like week and a half. That's pretty standard for these kinds of things. Yeah. So when it does come around, I will mention it on the podcast and put it on my YouTube channel, all those kinds of things. Happy, happy, joy, joy. But what I was showing was that you can use OIDC between GitHub Actions and HashiCorp Vault to prove the identity of the GitHub Action and let it access secrets without having a long-lived credential sit in your GitHub Actions. Right. That's a good thing. That is. Someone steals the code out of your GitHub Actions, it doesn't matter. Because if it's not coming from that repository and even that branch, the authentication will fail. Right. More than just an IP address. Exactly. And you can create custom claims. So you can actually add additional information in there, more things to check before you let the authentication go through. So this is where we're getting to this like identity is super critical and you can really tighten things up as much as you want. Right. It can be portable and still be secure. Exactly. And you don't need a username and password where the password never expires. Right. Because bad. Stop it. So that was my main session. Uh, I also got to go to a bunch of the hallway sessions, which were not recorded, so sorry about that. I do have a blog post going up later this week that details some of the sessions I found interesting, as well as links to the people who gave them. And if, and if it exists, a blog post they've done on the topic so you can dig deeper in. But the three that jumped out to me, and one of them's mine, <laughs> I, gotta do, I gotta promote myself at least a little. Uh, the first one was really interesting. It was uh, a company called Fermion, which, good name, well done. And their topic was they write programs in WebAssembly. Okay. And they were trying to deploy these programs at scale. So we're talking tens of thousands of instances. And they were trying to use Kubernetes to schedule it because Kubernetes, right? That's what everybody uses. It's the hot new thing. Not even that new. <laughs> and what they ran into is Kubernetes is really good at scheduling containers. It's not really good at scheduling WebAssembly programs. And putting them in a container kind of defeats the purpose. Right. So they tried to write this thing called a crustlet that would allow it to, <laughs> I know, listen, they were good at naming one thing. That's true. I will. I'll give you that. So they tried to build this thing called a crustlet that would allow you to run WebAssembly in a pod as a primitive in Kubernetes. And it never really quite worked right. And it was a lot of work for them to maintain. So then they looked into this thing called Nomad, which is HashiCorp's scheduling uh, software. Mm -hmm. And they were able to do it with the native driver that exists in Nomad without rewriting anything. So that was easier. Mm-hmm. They did eventually write a custom driver based off of the default driver to give them a little more control. Yeah. But now they are literally deploying tens of thousands of instances with Nomad, and it's really low overhead, and they don't have to deal with the Kubernetes cluster or API. Sounds like a win. So that was really interesting to see. And because I think that WebAssembly is kind of the future, it was interesting to see that 
what people have thought of as the platform of the future, Kubernetes, is not doing a great job of it. Well, I think this is one of those times where you can't just look at something like Kubernetes and say, hey, this is doing great for containers. We should use it for everything. <laughs> right, because it's not always going to be the perfect solution exactly. for everything. And, and to, to be fair, I don't think it ever intended to be. No, no. that was It was written in a time where containers, containers seemed to be the future. And so that was the deployable instance that they focused on. Right. It's kind of like when VMware tried to spin up containers. <laughs> oh, that was cute. It still is. So anyway, that was interesting, and there was a whole blog post about it that they wrote as well. And there's actually another company in the same space that is doing the same thing. So this is not an uncommon pattern people are finding. And with hardware, and and they're mostly using Firecracker VMs for it. So it's super fast to spin up, right. and it's running almost on bare metal. So keeping that all in mind, when you go off to your, your Tech Field Day thing and learn all about CXL, keep that in the back of your brain a little bit. What brain? Wait, I did that no, wrong. Right brain. Oh, right. Yes. <laughs> the next session was Azure Terrify. Great name. They're going to rename it. Please don't. <laughs> Please don't. Who do I have to call? Uh, Stephen Ma at Microsoft, because <laughs> he's the one who gave the presentation and told us that they're going to rename it. <laughs> and I get it. If you tell someone that you're going to use Azure Terrify, it just doesn't sound great. <sighs> And well, here the, I had my credit card in hand. I know. Well, you can't pay for it either. So, oh, it's an open source tool that is meant to take existing resources in Azure and backport it into Terraform for management. So you tell it, go look at this resource group or this subscription, and it will enumerate all the resources and create a Terraform configuration based off of it. So we've been dreaming this impossible dream for a number of years. <laughs> There have been several attempts at it with various levels of uh, success. There are some companies out there that are building their brand around this idea. And Microsoft's like, we'll just write it and give it to you for free. And what's interesting is the way that they built it, it seems like the sort of thing that could be reapplied to any cloud if someone's willing to put in the work. Right. And since it's open source, they can do that. Uh, but the project itself is going to be renamed. They added a ton of new features in the m most recent release to really expand what it's able to do effectively. And they're looking for input on the roadmap. So if you're in Azure and this is of interest to you at all, check it out. I'll throw a link in the show notes about the community that you can join and you can submit your own requests to try to influence the roadmap for something you want it to do. And the last session... And this is an interesting because it lines up to an announcement that happened at HashiCorp is Terraform Cloud. If you wanted to do policy as code, previously, you had to use their product called Sentinel, which is not open source and is only available on their enterprise products. Hmm. They have added support for OPA, Open Policy Agents. OPA! Exactly. And that means... All the OPA stuff that's out there can now run on Terraform Cloud. And it's almost, I won't say it's an actual, but it's almost an open admission that Sentinel, well, it was maybe a little too early to the market and shouldn't have been closed source. It was, you know, they have a lot going on. We can give them an oopsie here and there. Yeah, absolutely. So I think this is an admission that most people would prefer to use an open source product that they might already be using for Kubernetes for their Terraform deployments. Right. And there's a catalog of policies already out there for it. So why not just do that? And that's what we're doing. Exactly. So that has now been added into Terraform Cloud. It might be a beta right now. It'll go GA pretty quickly. My talk was basically on what OPA is and how it would work with Terraform. That one, again, was not recorded, unfortunately. Maybe I'll do a YouTube video about it because I made slides, damn it. Hey, you have a number of hallways in your house. You could recreate this entire episode. Oh my God, I totally could. That would be hilarious. I'm sure the kids would really enjoy it and get into it. Maybe yeah. we can do a TikTok. You need an audience. We do. And they want lunch. Well then. <clears throat> if you want to eat kids, you got to clap. <laughs> <laughs> so that was what I saw at HashiConf. Uh, I had a great time and I would highly recommend this conference to anybody who's thinking about attending something in your in the HashiCorp sphere at all, just because the people were really nice and the conference was the right size. Okay, and this was a yearly conference? Uh, they do one a year, 
in for they call it Hashicom Global, and then they also do an EU one, which will be in the spring of next year. And as we all know, EU is not on the globe. Not even close. It's like near the moon or something. <laughs> I don't know. I'm probably going to go to that as well. One of the Lagrange points, I think, is Brussels. Lagrange. You heard me. This is America. It's Notre Dame. <laughs> Lightning round? Lightning round. Oh, that joke never gets old. Advertising company Google wades into the IoT operating system game with Kata OS and Sparrow projects. There is no doubt that the explosion of smart devices has left us in a world of hackable convenience. <laughs> Over the years, we've covered stories of hackable light bulbs, hackable drones, and of course, the world-famous hackable toaster. You forgot about the crockpot, but oh yes, I'll leave it. Advertising company Google took a look at this situation and said, enough. This week, they announced a secure operating system for embedded devices. Specifically, at least at this point, quote, embedded devices that run ML applications, unquote. Hmm. The project is called Kata OS and is based on the SEL4 microkernel, or CEL4, as Ned would probably say. Absolutely. SEL4 is an interesting project unto itself, bringing such a severe attention to the security of its component communications model that they call it mathematically proven security. Wow. Which feels bold. Indeed. Kata OS, written almost entirely in Rust, aims to bring that security to more devices and enhance its functionality. The complete product is available on GitHub in a reference implementation called Sparrow. I don't know what the connection between Kata and Sparrow is, but I'm sure there's one in some manga that I haven't read. <laughs> Fair enough. The intent here is a super secure platform to run isolated VM workloads on small devices. The initial Sparrow release runs on 64-bit ARM in QEMU. Time will tell if this is loaded with secret spyware that will only really benefit advertising company Google, or if advertising company Google will simply tire of the project after three years and completely abandon it without warning. Can we call them AdCogo? AdCogo? <laughs> we'll work on the pronunciation off mic. It's adorable, though. <laughs> oh, AdCogo. ESNet 6 feels the need for speed. ESNet, or the Energy Services Network, is a private network built for research institutions to share scientific data across a high-speed network. It grew up in tandem with DARPAnet, which is the precursor to the modern internet. Prior to the official ESNet was the MFENet, used to share magnetic fusion energy data between Princeton and Berkeley, California. Composed of a cadre of dial-up modems running at what we would find laughable speeds. 2400 baud ought to be good enough for anybody. <laughs> the ESNet was formally introduced in 1986 and since that time has increased in speed dramatically with each revision. I enjoyed reading through the 1986 conference notes for the future of intersite networking where they referenced the availability of an X.25 switch that could move 1100 packets per second at an amazing 153 kilobits per second for a meager $14,000. It's a bargain at twice the price. That was the foundation for MEFNet 2, which became ESNet. Last week, ESNet 6 was announced, bringing with it a transfer speed between 400 gigabits to 1 terabit per second. That's, um... <laughs> that's more. That's faster. The drive behind Evermore bandwidth is the generation of Evermore data that needs to be shared between these scientific institutions. We're talking datasets in the petabyte range being accessed across ESNet 6. Along with the speed upgrade, ESNet 6 also includes an expanded, dedicated fiber optic backbone, network automation, cybersecurity features, and real-time telemetry. Vint Cerf, sometimes called the father of the internet, said, Quote, it is an astonishing accomplishment and a turning point in design and architecture, end quote. And he expressed confidence that the operational insights and technology advances will be shared with ISPs and major connectivity providers to help improve the public internet as well. <laughs> oh, that's cute. Isn't help, it? help the public. Anyway, Microsoft Ignite was last week, and boy, are my arms on fire. What? What? What does that even... Who writes this crap, anyway? Steve. 
Steve! <laughs> anyway, as we talked about last episode, with alarmingly little notice, Microsoft's Ignite conference was, well, last week. And it went just about as thrillingly as usual. Woo! The product update announcements had been more or less telegraphed through the usual channels. As we all know, tech people hate surprises. But being the inveterate journalistic pit bulls that we are, we figured we'd give you a quick rundown here. That's a sticker. Inveterate journalistic pit bulls? That's the one. I cannot wait to throw that into stable diffusion. <laughs> <laughs> number one. And, like, really, number one with a bullet was a lot of this uh, productivity stuff. Yes. High on the list was Teams. <sighs> Microsoft is all in on teams being the end-all be-all of your productivity life. You know when, like, you find a cool new thing and then your parents find out about it and they just ruin it? You mean Facebook? I'm not thinking about any particular technology. <laughs> it could be anybody. <laughs> just saying. Teams. So what did they announce? Did they fix all the bugs that make it frustrating to use teams? Did they redo the web client so that video meetings actually work on Firefox again? Did they change the available color scheme so that at least one of them wasn't the graphical equivalent of a stress headache? <laughs> of course not. No. They added Microsoft Teams Premium. Hmm. Now you can pay more for things like custom logos and backgrounds, AI that highlights important moments and assigns tasks after meetings, oh, provides recaps, and you can do whatever an advanced webinar is. It's a webinar that's advanced. Oh, my mistake. They also added virtual avatars to the Teams app store. So now, if somebody complains that your virtual background is causing distracting flickering, you can proudly replace your foreground with a virtual you that will blend seamlessly. <laughs> Fixed! Microsoft 365 saw new features released and at least announced, particularly around Project for the Web, which is a way overdue update to a frankly pathetic current effort and Microsoft Planner, which is, of course, built into Teams. They are aiming to modernize both of these tools, incorporate agile functionality, and connect them to something called Viva Goals, which is a project that also saw updates, but I don't know anything about it, so I'm skipping it entirely. It's for the best. And finally, security updates. The Microsoft Security Portfolio saw some streamlining and a very nifty graphical update that you'll just have to see to believe. Ooh. Defender is getting a new weapon named Microsoft Defender for DevOps, which I hope is self-explanatory. Defender Cloud Security Posture Management is now in preview and should help with overview and risk management for all your cloudy needs. Data Management Security is getting more robust support with Microsoft Purview now working its classification and labeling magic externally with Adobe's Document Cloud. There's also a lot worth reading about in terms of updates and future announcements at the Sentinel and XDR levels, if you're into that sort of thing. We know you are. There are a lot of other little updates as well, and the Ignite Book of News goes into depth on all of them. It also talks about how the systems discussed are intended to communicate and strengthen each other, so it's well worth at least skimming in its entirety. Link to the book in the show notes. Microsoft Office is dead. Long live Microsoft 365. Good old Microsoft Office. If there has been one constant in my IT career, it has been, for good or ill, the presence of the Microsoft Office suite. Even when I have ventured into open source territory, the standard of measurement to compare has always been Microsoft Office products. The very first Microsoft Office bundle for Windows came out in 1990 and included Word, Excel, and PowerPoint. Since then, more applications have been added and sometimes removed, including your favorites like Outlook, OneNote, and more recently, Teams. <laughs> After 32 years, Microsoft has decided to retire the Office bundle and go with the less-than-creative name Microsoft 365. We at Chaos Lever here think this is very dumb. Here, here. Office perfectly encapsulated what the bundle was meant for. Microsoft 365 is already a subscription service that includes Office and Windows, and such a rebranding is only going to lead to consumer confustion. 
And you know what? I accidentally typed confustion. And you know what else? Fuck it. <laughs> I'm rebranding confusion as confustion. You might wonder what new awesomeness is coming with the rebranding of Microsoft Office, of course. New icons. Yay! Who doesn't love a new icon and a logo, right? Also, there's a new Microsoft 365 app that will be kind of like the existing office.com portal. A super app from yeah. which all other Office apps will be launched. Yay? Do you want this? No. Of course you do, oh, silly. yes, yes. The super app will also serve as a discovery mechanism for other apps Microsoft wants you to try out. Like that weird sway thing. Generally, I think most rebrandings are pointless marketing exercises that only serve to confuse the consumer and offer no benefit to anyone. In this case, however, that is still 100% true. Facebook continues to try to make the metaverse happen. Spoiler alert, it's not going to happen. It's probably not going to happen. Irrepressible and unaccountable man-child Mark Zuckerberg continues to desperately pimp his idea for the metaverse, much to the wider world's chagrin and bewilderment. The news has been coming hard and fast about the wet fart that is Zuck's metaverse, with recent stories highlighting the total failure of the metaverse inside of Facebook, Zuck wanting everyone to attend meetings in it, completely ignoring the fact that not all employees had the necessary hardware. Then there was the breaking news that avatars in the metaverse will now have legs. So they can walk away. Well, thank God. <laughs> Surely that was the one thing that was keeping people from caring about this literally tens of billions of dollars of boondoggle. Oh, wait, no, just kidding. That didn't help at all. Nope. As Zuckerberg continues to recklessly drive Facebook off of this virtual cliff, analysts have been watching and judging from the sidelines. On all the poorly thought out and destined for failure wild swings Zuck has been taking recently with company money, a longtime Facebook watcher said, quote, I think Mark Zuckerberg is telling us he doesn't think he has a core business, mm. unquote, which is business writers speak for sell the stock now, you fools. It certainly doesn't help that the vast majority of people who try the metaverse just don't go back. Mm -hmm. Or there is apparently something called cyber sickness, which is a VR-caused vertigo-nausea combination. Fun. That'll keep people out too, probably. Most likely. Also, their latest headset costs $1,500 and, of course, requires a Facebook account to use. Mm -hmm. Why do you think they got rid of Oculus? <sighs> And of course, there's the fact that Facebook is, in general, a trash company that is fading from relevance on a daily basis. The stock price is down an impressive 61% year over year. We did it! And analysts think that the ad-driven company market in general will lose even more when they release Q4 earnings. Perhaps we're being overzealous. Never. There may actually be a functionable metaverse one day one day Ten thousand cyberpunk dystopian novels can't be wrong but something tells me it will not be a metaverse controlled by a megalomaniacal and apparently completely unaccountable man child who thinks he's the second coming of emperor augustus that's not a joke by the way he he really thinks that Ooh. that haircut is on purpose wow yeah you missed the partnership with microsoft if you want a slightly different take on the metaverse, check out the Sharp Tech podcast with Ben Thompson, where he goes into detail where he thinks that Microsoft is going to take this technology and run with it, leaving Facebook with the $10 billion price tag. I love it. I'm in favor of it. <laughs> if at first you don't succeed, fail, fail again. Finally, one that speaks to my needs. <laughs> when you think of space internet, who do you think of? Starlink, right? Yeah. Uh, the movie Armageddon? Or Starlink. Oh, okay. The secret behind Starlink's success has been their close ties to a rocket company, SpaceX, and government contracts that dump piles of money on them. But there's room for more than one competitor in the space, and in fact, Starlink wasn't even the first company to try and strike it rich with the satellite-based internet. <clears throat> one company that we covered on a remarkably similar podcast was OneWeb a satellite startup that had the lofty goal of building a 48,000 satellite constellation 
only to fall to bankruptcy and emerge later with a less lofty goal of 7,000 satellites. Note they only have about 400 in orbit today. The founder of OneWeb, Greg Weiler, has not let previous failings stop him. Starting the new eSpace company. That's what it's called, eSpace. Starting in the first half of 2022. Not content with a mere 48,000 satellites, Greg's new goal is 300,000 satellites. One per subscriber. <laughs> uh, the company has a decent amount of funding and just hired the CEO of SES, another satellite company, to be their head of strategy. What's different this time? What's the new strategy? They are planning to market their offering to countries looking to have a sovereign constellation of their own instead of relying on private companies or the U.S. to provide service. The constellations will be available either as a service or for outright purchase. As the terrestrial internet becomes increasingly fragmented, it's probably no surprise that the space internet will do the same. If there was one thing governments love to spend money on, it's privately held communications gear they can tightly control and govern. Hooray, capitalism. We did it. Yay. Hey, thanks for listening or something. I guess you found it worthwhile if you made it all the way to the end. So congratulations to you, friend. You accomplished something today. Now, frolic in the fields of Elysium with Sting, his fretless bass, and his timeless Fade Rutha visage. You've earned it. You can find me or Chris on Twitter at Ned1313 and at Hainer80 respectively, or follow the show at Chaos underscore Lever if that's the kind of thing you're into. Show notes are available at ChaosLever.com if you like reading things, which you shouldn't. Podcasts are better in every conceivable way. We'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us. Ta-ta for now. I might have set a record for screw-ups on that. There were like three of them. <laughs> no, those were yours. I did like 11. I know. I have them in my editor's notes. <laughs> Bastard. It's fine. First. It's all fine. It's fine. <laughs>